0: Well, go ahead and get your Bibles out and uh, turn to Luke chapter 16. Uh, Luke 16, we're continuing in our sermon series. What does the Bible say about that? As you're turning to Luke 16, I think we can all appreciate a little bit of humor or irony as uh, we deal with a very... Very difficult topic this morning, the topic of hell. And uh, you can call this a rookie mistake. You can call this bad planning, you can call this whatever you want, but happy Mother's Day. <laughs> um, right For some, for some, that's a stark contrast, and yet for others, the concept of hell and Mother's Day is related. And uh, let me let me just try to thread the needle here briefly before we dive into the text, because I think what we want to do is <clears throat> we want to rightly honor uh, our moms, and we want to rightly speak to all that moms do. And for many of you, I would just simply say thank you uh, for how you've served so faithfully as a mother. But see, as a pastor, right, when you think about your people, you, you, you hold things in tension because for some of you, you, you love your mom, and you love being a mom, and you love your children. I love my mom. I think I have one of the best moms on the planet, okay? I'm so blessed by her. I'm so thankful for her. Uh, and so today is a day that certainly for me where I would celebrate my mother. But see, here's the tension that we have to hold that in, is that for some of you, For some of you, Mother's Day is not a day that you celebrate. For some of you, Mother's Day is not a day that is exciting. For some of you, today is really painful. Because it's a reminder that maybe you didn't have the best mom. Maybe for some of you, it's painful because you so desperately want to be a mom, but for whatever reason, God has not allowed you uh, to do that. Maybe for some of you, you are a mom, but you're grieved as to where you find your children uh, today. And so, so let, let's hold that intention, and certainly we don't ignore all that our moms have done for us, but for some of you, for some of you, simply just know that we understand that today's hard, okay, and we understand that it's difficult. And so when I say Happy Mother's Day, uh, I don't want to be negligent uh, to the fact that, you know, for some of you, it's not happy. Um, so with that, with that, certainly we do want to honor our moms and we say thank you. Uh, But with that, let's now turn our attention to Luke 16. Uh, What does the Bible say about hell? Even just saying that, it's so sobering, so somber. What does the Bible say about hell? And I understand, listen, I understand right here at the outset that there's a real sensitivity that's required uh, to this issue because all of us, all of us, all of us are so deeply impacted by this truth and this reality all of us all of us can think of loved ones and close friends and family members that either to our knowledge find themselves there or should they die today would find themselves there so we don't <clears throat> we don't come at this casually we don't come at this flippantly we don't come at this indifferently but the danger okay listen the danger with Topic like this is that we come to it and we allow it to be emotionally driven, not word driven. Okay, because the Bible has some really uh, uh, clear things to say regarding this topic, and they're hard things. Okay? This is one of those hard truths of the Bible. And God help us that we would not fall into the temptation to move away from what does God Himself say concerning these things and move towards what would I like it to be? What, what what do I want to believe? What do I want to be true? See, because I, I can say what I want it to be or what I think it is, but truthfully, it's utter foolishness if it's at odds with God's word. Right? In the same way that I could want the sky to be purple with pink polka dots. That doesn't make it true. Okay. And so let's uh, understand that as we come here to uh, the scriptures. I'll tell you what, before we even read the passage, I I just want to pray. Okay, let's just pray. And uh, we desperately, desperately, desperately need God to have his way with us. Why don't you pray with me? Lord Jesus, we come before you right now. And uh, God, we we recognize the uh, gravity and the weight and uh, the intensity of what's uh, before us. God, I pray that your spirit would move within us, uh, that this very sobering reality uh, that is staring all of us in the face, that you would give us clarity, uh, God, that you would give us wisdom and insight, that you would give us uh, a true biblical uh, understanding and wisdom regarding this, uh, and that we would know uh, what you say uh, regarding this difficult truth, and then that it would impact the ways in which we live our lives, Uh, understanding rightly these truths. God, not only for us, I pray for Pastor Nate Bush and for New City Church. I pray for Nate that you would uh, be with him today, that you would be moving and working in his church and his congregation, that you would be speaking through him. And that, God, that you'd be honored uh, in that group of believers as they attempt uh, to follow you and serve you and live for you. And, God, now as we come to uh, this passage would you open our hearts and minds to see exactly what it is that you want us to see and hear from you? Uh, God, would you give us the courage, the courage to hear rightly and respond rightly uh, to the difficulties in this uh, particular passage? So Jesus, we're yielded, we're yielded to you and asking you to move and work. Uh, we pray this in your name, Lord. Amen. Luke 16, uh, we're going to start in verse 19. Verse 19, and in any time, context is always important, but certainly as we're moving through the sermon series, we find ourselves in different passages or different books each week, not just working through a particular book of the Bible. Uh, We need to uh, have uh, some context. So here's just some brief context. Luke uh, 16, Jesus is speaking both to his disciples and to the religious leaders, um, and and really the tone of the text, the tone of the passage, and what Jesus is attempting uh, to get across is a warning This is very much a warning that he wants uh, his disciples to heed. This is very much a warning that he wants uh, the religious leaders to heed, that he is speaking uh, to them on. And so certainly we'll we'll embrace that same uh, tone uh, and sense as we move uh, through this passage. Uh, I will tell you that the different people have different views on this passage as to whether or not this is a parable, uh, whether or not this is an illustrative story, or whether or not this is an, an, an actual account, an event and uh, there's, there's, uh, honestly, there's some good uh, evidence uh, for each of those particular arguments. Uh, suffice to say, whether you would, where, wherever you would land on that, that the, the truths that are expounded by Jesus regarding hell in this passage cannot simply be dismissed as, well, this is just a parable, or this is just a story, and we're just trying to get to the, 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 the really what's the moral of the story and be nice to your neighbor. That's not the point. The point here is this, this is a stern warning. And, and Jesus is going to great lengths to uh, help us understand what's at stake. So with that, let's read here, uh, starting in verse 19. we get a little context here. He says, There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen, and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. And so here Jesus introduces us to two uh, characters. There's uh, the rich man who has uh, really every conceivable rich uh, riches that you could uh, think of, and Lazarus, uh, who's so poor that he's literally laid at this man's gate, probably some physical uh, disability that causes him to be in this particular uh, state. And in fact, notice at the end of verse 21, he says, Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. But He couldn't even shoo the dogs away from licking the sores on his body. Notice, uh, Jesus continues, uh, verse 22, The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. may cross from there to us. So the rich man, notice his response in verse 27, resolved with his own state, he says this, Then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. He's like, Listen, they have God's word. That's sufficient. Let them hear that he doesn't seem to get the message. Verse 30, he said, no, Father Abraham. He's like, no, no, you don't know them like I do. But if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. And Abraham's like, no, you don't know God like I do. Verse 31, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will, be they, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. What does the Bible say about hell? The title of the message this morning, Is the cold hard facts about hell? The cold hard facts about hell, and there's just some cold hard facts that we got to get on the table. We have to be real about. We have to understand. If we're going to move forward rightly, now, now know this: no one, no one, no one who takes the Bible seriously rejects the notion of heaven. In fact, there's plenty of people who don't believe the Bible, but wholeheartedly embrace the notion of heaven. And yet, more and more and more, uh, we see a professing evangelical believers who reject and deny and distort and attempt to soften the reality of hell. And I find it quite interesting, more, more than anyone else in all the scriptures, that Jesus himself had more to say about hell than anyone else. In fact, here's here's just some of the things that Jesus said. Let me give you a summary here, actually. Uh, What we see from Jesus, uh, never mind the other authors of Scripture, but from Jesus is that he taught and affirmed both the existence of hell, and uh, we'll use this as a definition, that hell is a physical place of eternal conscious torment for the wicked. That is how Jesus defines, describes, and articulates hell throughout the entirety of the Gospels. That it is a physical place of eternal conscious torment for the wicked. Now, let's be really clear. What do we mean by wicked? Well, by wicked, we would mean every sinner. Okay? Every sinner, apart from the grace of Jesus would find themselves there hell is not simply reserved for the hitlers and mouths of humanity It's reserved for all who would reject the truth of jesus Here's just a few things that jesus said about hell In fact, all of these here are just from the gospel of matthew uh, Repeatedly he tells us it's a place of fire repeatedly. He tells us that it's a place where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth He tells us that it's the place where both the body and soul will be destroyed He tells us it's the place of outer darkness and he says it's the home of hypocrites In other parts, or in other Gospels, he tells us that it's an unquenchable fire. He says that it's the place where the worm does not die, and that he and he alone has the authority to cast into hell. Robert Thomas, in his response to Jesus and his ministry and the concept of hell, says this. He says, throughout his ministry, Jesus taught that the lost would depart into eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels, and eternal punishment In other words, they will suffer endless conscious agony away from the presence of God and his Son. Now listen very carefully to what he says next. None of the other options that confuse the evangelical spectrum are viable in light of Jesus' view of eternal punishment. So never mind what any of the other writers of Scripture say, what Jesus alone tells us, is that all other attempts and descriptions and explanations of hell fall short of what Jesus himself has taught us. See, we can't be casual with this. We can't be flippant and indifferent about this because there's too much at stake. Richard Mayhew, in his article about hell, says this. He says, "...neither a cavalier attitude toward the lost, and I love this, nor a compassionate compromise." We think we're doing them a favor, but it's really a compromise. Neither a cavalier attitude toward the lost nor a compassionate compromise are appropriate for a subject of such grave import. And John MacArthur, uh, referencing both of these comments, goes on to say this. He says, to warn sinners of the fearful fate that awaits them is an act of sympathy and compassion. It's not, listen very carefully, it's not the intolerant, harsh, judgmental statement that so many would claim in our day it is in fact as macarthur says an act of sympathy and compassion macarthur goes on and says this but in its zeal to find pragmatic new methods of evangelism the church has too often abandoned its message that message must include the bad news of what happens to those who reject the good news of the gospel see we want to have a right view of hell because it will rightly motivate us in our lives And so bear with me, bear with me here in the next few moments as we just get some facts on the table, and normally as we would move through the message where we would take both the teachings and the truths of the scriptures and then apply those instantly into our lives, but I want to get all the facts on the table and then at the end talk about how that that, that transforms us, how that should change us, how that should point us towards the gospel, and things of that nature. I love this saying, proper perspective produces proper service. That's exactly what we want. We want to have a proper perspective regarding hell. We need to have a proper perspective regarding hell so that we can properly serve our Savior. So here we go. The cold, hard facts about hell. I've got seven of them. Or Jesus gives us seven of them more appropriately here in verses 19 through 31. Verses 19 through 21 kind of sets the stage, introduces us to the characters uh, that Jesus speaks of. Let's start in verse 22. Here's the first thing we see. He says, The the poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. Uh, The rich man also died and was buried and in Hades. See, the first reality that we see regarding hell is that people enter eternity at the point of their death. That at the very point of your death, at the, the moment that you breathe your last, you enter into eternity. At that very moment, on the other side, we 'll talk about some of the implications here as we move through this passage, but notice that the text gives no other no other indication but instantaneously died, death find themselves in eternity now let, let me just say this real quick too, because I think sometimes we get confused. We see the poor man and and what we see in this uh, passage here is we see a poor man who goes to heaven and a rich man who goes to hell, and it's like, wait, does it just does does that mean that the poor go to heaven and the rich go to hell? No, no, we'll, we'll see that it comes down to heart issues, but don't be confused by that, or don't let that um, begin to let you think wrongly around the gospel itself. But people enter eternity at the point of death. At your final breath, you will find yourself in eternity. Some will be exhilarated. Others will be horrified. All of us will find ourselves there. Now, see, there's a lot of distortions. There's a lot of wrong thinking, bad thinking about what happens when we die. Let's just get a few of them on the table here. Here's some common distortions of what happens in eternity. Here's the first one is purgatory. Is purgatory. Now, purgatory is primarily a Catholic belief. But you'd be shocked how much uh, th- this is creeping into evangelical circles or some modification of this. And purgatory is simply the idea that, that, that what happens is you don't go directly to heaven, but that we all go to this uh, holding cell, if you will. And we have all the impurities and, and all the, the issues and shortcomings of us uh, burned off. And then once we're cleansed, we eventually go on to heaven. And of course, the danger in this is thinking, well, I can deal with that later. No, you can't. It's fixed. Okay? And this false distortion of purgatory. Here's the second one. This is probably the most common one right now. And it's incredibly, incredibly dangerous. And it's universalism. It's the belief of universalism. It's this belief that, that God will ultimately win the day, that God will ultimately conquer all of sin. And regardless of where you find yourself, regardless of what you thought about Jesus, regardless of, of where you stood, in eternity, God, because God's a God of love, He's gonna work it all out, and all of us will find ourselves with Jesus. Okay, true confessions, that sounds kind of nice, doesn't it? That sounds kind of man. That'd be kind that'd be really great. God could work it all out, and we could all be there. That would be fantastic, except there's a couple of problems with that. First of all, we don't see anything, anything even remotely close to that in the scriptures. Furthermore, not only do we not see anything in the scriptures that would uh, confirm it, uh, but we see a lot of things that would become highly problematic because of it. Because to believe universalism and to believe this uh, particular belief, you've got to eliminate the atonement. Uh, God's no longer holy. He's no longer righteous. He's no longer just. All those passages in the scriptures where Jesus talks about uh, dealing with sin and engaging those things, well, we've got to throw those out too. Now we've got the whole issue of whether or not God's even truthful or honest or not. See, there's, there's a number of theological implications and dominoes that begin to fall if we have a wrong perspective on this. The real danger of universalism is the idea of, well, I, Ooh, I like that one. That's, that's palatable. But it's not true. It's, it's not biblical. And it's not what Jesus has told us or taught us. Thirdly, there's this false conception, this distortion. It's called annihilationism. And at least I'll give credit to annihilationism in that they do affirm that hell is a physical place and, and that people are there and they do suffer some form of, um, of, of torment or anguish. But then the belief in annihilationism is, is that at some point in time you simply cease to exist. And there's a couple of passages in the New Testament where where, where God talks about destroying uh, people. And they go, see, he destroys them. They're they're gone. They no longer exist. Except that's not what the word means in those passages. And it's not at all what we see taught anywhere else. In fact, the word that is used in those passages uh, simply means to be rendered useless, to perish, or to be lost. It doesn't mean that they cease to exist Furthermore, when Jesus, in Matthew 25, he, remember the sheep and the goats? And he said, some to eternal punishment, others to eternal life. Eternal, right? Same word there. Now, anyone in here want to start making the argument that heaven has some time limitation to it? That suddenly it's not eternal? Because, see, you have to do that if you want to make that same true of what Jesus says there in Matthew 25. Annihilationism, a distortion of the reality of hell. I just wrote this down, it's certainly tied to annihilationism, but it's not uh, solely the issue. And really it's the the issue of the temporal versus the eternal. And it's this argument, this idea that hell's an excessive punishment. Hell's an overreaction. It's too much. Uh, You you, you want to tell me that a temporary life, a finite life with sin and consequence of eternal magnitude. I'm sorry, that's that's too much. That just is not right. That's not fair. See, the issue when we come to the place where we think that hell is excessive or uh, overreaching... Does not arrive, or does not arise out of a biblical truth. It arises out of a place where we fail to recognize the magnitude and the gravity and the weight of our sin before a holy and righteous God. That becomes the issue. And listen to this quote by David Kingdon. David Kingdon says this. He says, "Sin against the Creator is heinous to a degree, utterly beyond our sin warped imagination's ability to conceive of." Who would have the temerity or audacity or arrogance to suggest to God what the punishment should be? You're going to be the one to say, Hey, God, uh, you blew it too much. It's excessive. It's an overreaction. We see these principles in the scriptures. Okay, question, question. How many times did Adam and Eve sin before they got kicked out of the garden? Show me, show me. One time permanent eviction nation of Israel wandering around the desert series of failure permanent eviction from the promised land judas and his betrayal of jesus one sin eternal consequence let's understand the reality of eternity at the point of death let's not think wrongly about this too often too often we see it through the lens of our of our humanistic thinking, and not the perspective of a holy and righteous God. People enter eternity at the point of death. Notice this secondly, look at verse 23. Describing the rich man, it says he's in Hades being in torment. Being in torment. So you've got to understand that people in hell are in torment. I mean, it's clear, right? We see it in verse 23, we see it in verse 24. right? Clearly in torment, and again, we need to see this through the lens of, of God's righteousness, not 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 through our humanistic understanding and thinking. Because what else? What do we see in the whole of Scripture? What is what, what does the rest of the scriptures tell us? Well, Second Thessalonians one tells us that they, right those who reject Christ, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord. Revelation fourteen talks about the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever this is the punishment for sin it's the right punishment for sin it's the just punishment for sin it's the fair punishment for sin and let's let's just be really really honest here for a moment it's exactly what each and every one of us deserves see we lose sight of the fact that if we deserve anything it's that we deserve hell And it's only by the mercy and grace of God that we experience anything else in our existence. People in hell are very much aware of their torment. Notice then this, verse 24. And he called out, the rich man begins to speak, Father Abraham, I want you to underline these next four words. Have mercy on me. Have mercy on me. Those are critical words. And send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue. For I am in anguish in this flame. Not only are people in torment in hell, but people in hell are aware of their anguish. Very clearly, right? Very clearly in verse 24, we see this man who is who is cognizant of the anguish that he finds himself in. Now, lest we think that God is so twisted, or sordid, or cruel, jump back up to those four words, have mercy on me, have mercy on me. See, we've got to understand what it means to have mercy on someone. See, to have mercy, to extend mercy, is to not give someone what they do, in fact, deserve. And so part of what this man is saying in this moment is that I am justly punished for my sins. Did you notice how nowhere does he say, hey, this is an overreaction. This is excessive. This is too much. God, how dare you? None of that. In fact, the only thing that he says is have mercy on me, which is an admission. It's an admission of his guilt. See, because grace, right? Grace is getting what I don't deserve. That's the gift that God gives to you and I when he offers us eternal life. It's it's what God extends to us when he says, you can be my child again. And we can come back into relationship if you would simply turn from sin and turn towards a savior. That is grace. Mercy, mercy is where God takes what we do deserve, the just punishment of our sin. And he removes it from us. And this man here, have mercy on me. Have mercy on me. Right aware of their anguish. And not only only is this an admission, but notice one other thing here in verse 24. I believe we see in Lazarus, or in uh, the rich man, a continued hardness of heart. See, because the rich man... The rich man never viewed Lazarus in a positive light. He never looked at Lazarus as another individual created in the image of God. But he looked at him as some half-human sitting outside my gate, that, you know, some rubbish that I had to deal with. And so here he finds himself in a place where he, there should be great humility. And what's he saying to Abraham? Send that guy. Send that half-human down here to alleviate my pain. That's really what he's saying. And it's a hardness of heart. Not only will people in hell be aware of their anguish, but I believe many of them will find themselves in a place where they are still unrepentant. Notice then this, verse 25. But Abraham said, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things, and Lazarus in like manner, bad things. Now, again, lest we think that this is just works-oriented or about... Well, poor people go to heaven and rich people go to hell. That's not what he's getting at. There's uh, some heart issues. And, of course, what we just talked about, right, the unrepentant heart of the rich man. And this is interesting. I'm not sure. I'm sure God did this on purpose. But Lazarus is actually the Greek derivative of the the Hebrew uh, name Eleazar, which means whom God has helped. And we see this contrast of the self-sufficient, I help myself, I do my own thing, rich man. And Lazarus, incapable of helping myself, but submitted and subjected to Jesus Christ and him alone. And so that, I think, is a significant part of the heart issues we see here. But notice, not only that, but that people in hell have an awareness of their life on earth. Right? People in hell have an awareness of their life on earth. Abraham says, hey, remember remember these things were happening to you. These these good things happened to you. And not only did he, he remember what happened to him, but he remembered what happened to others as well. An awareness of life on earth. John MacArthur says this. He quotes from Mark 9 where it describes the... The, the worm that does not die and he says this he says the worm most likely symbolizes the fully informed accusing conscience and the gnawing nagging relentless guilt it presses upon the soul tortured in <clears throat> in hell revelation 6 talks about the martyrs crying out how long o lord before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth in eternity in eternity yet aware of what had happened on earth People in hell are aware of their lives here on earth. I wonder, I often wonder, will they remember everything? Will they only remember portions? Or will they only remember the times where the gospel was right in front of them and they rejected it? Will, will it be a constant reminder of all that God offered to them and their deliberate, intentional, willful rejection of those things. Some of you might be sitting here right now having one of those moments where the gospel of Jesus Christ is right in front of you and the Spirit of God pressing in, pressing down upon you. And we're very clearly in your heart of hearts what Jesus is saying to you is it's time to turn from sin, it's time to walk away from this eternal destiny that you're racing towards and turn towards me. Rejecting sin, turning from sin, embracing uh, the salvation of Jesus offered to you and I on the cross. This moment, for some of you, maybe right in front of you, people in hell remember their lives on earth. Notice this, verse 26, people in hell will never leave. People in hell will never leave. Besides all this, Between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able, and none, you might want to underline, circle, highlight, do whatever, and none may cross from there to us. No one's going to want to leave heaven and head to hell. There'll be plenty who will want to leave hell and head towards heaven, but very clearly, none may cross. We'll never leave. The chasm is fixed. And so much of the false teaching that we talked about earlier, it gets at this misconception that, hey, after the fact, on the other side of my life, we can work this out, we can make it happen. No, no, the moment you breathe, your last. Eternity is fixed. The author of Hebrews tells us that it's appointed for man to die once, and then comes judgment. People in hell will never leave. Notice this, verse 27 and 8. And he said, Right, resolved with his state. All right, I'm not going anywhere. But I've got brothers who are still living. And he said, Then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. See, people in hell desire for others to be aware. People in hell desire for others to be aware. And he's, right, this man is crying out Would you go to my brothers? Would you, would you go to my brothers? Would you go to my family? Would you make this known to them? I often think at funerals, if the person that we're here remembering could come back and tell us one thing, what would be the one thing that they would come back and tell us? What would be the one thing? I think if someone came from heaven in the very presence of Jesus himself, they would probably come back and say something like, You have no idea! Quit living for today and start living for eternity. I think the truth is that if someone were to come back from hell they would tell us the exact same words just with a very different tone and manner you have no idea quit living for today quit living for yourself and start living for jesus this should be such a stark warning for us all and then this final one look at verses 29 through 31 uh Quite possibly the most difficult, uh, certainly uh, highly confrontive, but also uh, the most clear of them all. Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. He said, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He's like, listen, I understand how God throughout all of eternity has talked about how it is that we're supposed to be saved. I'm just telling you, these guys need something different. If you could just do something else for them, then they would be saved. I love this response. He said to him, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. See, people are in hell because of their hardness of hearts. People are in hell because of their hardness of hearts. That's really the crux of the issue here. It's the hardness of our hearts that moves us to this place. Jesus said in John 5, he says, You refuse to come to me that you may have life John 12 talks about how Jesus performed many signs and wonders and they still did not believe. Right? So even this rich man, it's like, well, you didn't get it because they saw plenty of signs and wonders and even then they still rejected choosing not to believe. And see, the rich man, like everyone who will ultimately find themselves in hell, they find themselves there for one reason and one reason alone a failure to hear and to act upon the truth of Jesus and his word that is why they are there now it's a hardness of heart it's a hardness of heart but mike how could a how could a god who's so loving and compassionate and caring how could he send someone to hell you don't get it. They chose it. They rejected his offer and they chose their own way. C.S. Lewis says this. He says, In the long run, the answer to all those who object to the doctrine of hell is itself a question. What are you asking God to do? It's like, What are you asking God to do? To wipe out their past sins and at all costs to give them a fresh start smoothing every difficulty and offering every miraculous help. That kind of sounds like something he did 2,000 years ago, doesn't it? Lewis goes on, he says, but he has done so on Calvary. To forgive them? No, they will not be forgiven. To leave them alone? Alas, I'm afraid that is exactly what he does. See, the irony of hell is that people get exactly what they want. They get the absence of Jesus every human, every person that finds themselves there find themselves there because they rejected the truth of Jesus with a hardness of heart and chose to do their own thing. Listen, loved ones, these are hard, hard truths. But proper perspective produces proper service. We can't fix this on the other side. There's no redos, there's no try-overs, there's no try-agains. We don't get to come back and have a second crack at this. Eternity truly hangs in the balance. So what do we do with this? How do we respond to this? A biblical response to the truth about hell. Here's six. Six biblical responses. Some of them are internal. Some of them are external. I think they're all tied together. First of all, we should repent from sin. Okay, the place we start is we repent from sin. Uh, For those who, uh, never having trusted in Jesus for the first time, turning from sin, turning towards the Savior, rejecting a life of self and embracing a life of following Jesus. Right, we have to come to grips with the severity of our sin. The perfect, sinless Son of God was brutally beaten and hung on a cross to make it right. There are no trifling matter, loved ones. It's weighty and it's significant. We need to repent of our sin. Second of all, second response, we should be thankful to God. We should be thankful to God. Wait, did you just tell me that I should be thankful to God about the doctrine of hell? Absolutely. You're darn right you should be thankful. It's what every single one of us deserves. It's the only thing that you and I have truly earned or achieved in our lifetime. And we should be unmistakably grateful and thankful because some of us will never, ever go there. Some of us will live in eternity in the very presence of God himself who paid it all to see us reconciled and redeemed. And you can't, listen, 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 you can't appreciate the magnitude of the good news without knowing the depths of the bad news. And the, the gospel is not just some moralistic approach to living a better life. It's that Jesus Christ came to save people who were dead and had no hope and had no chance. And he reached down into time to redeem humanity. We should absolutely be thankful for the doctrine of hell because of the implications of all that Jesus Christ has done for us. Think about what Paul says, Romans 7. Wretched man that I am, who will free me from this body of sin and death. That's a hopeless place. But thanks be to our Lord Jesus Christ. That's the response, is thankfulness. Repent from sin, thankful to God. Thirdly, we should examine our lives. We should examine our lives. I don't these past two weeks looking at both heaven and hell, right, having eternity right in front of us, we have to wrestle with that question what am I living for? What is it that I'm living for? What is it that I'm after? What is it that's gripped my heart? Right in Jesus, what does it profit the man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? Who cares if you can collect it all if in virtually no time at all you gotta give it back? Was a profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? We should be examining our lives. What is it that I'm living for? Three more. We should be broken for the lost. I had a biblical response to the truths about hell. We should be broken for the lost. How can how can you start talking about hell and not be? How can you not be broken for the lost? My sense is is that many of you, most of you, maybe all of you, at some point in time, if not throughout the entirety of the message, have had uh, someone, if not a number of someones, who mean a, a great deal to you that keep coming to your mind. And I can't imagine that you're casual or apathetic about those people. I think about some of my family members. I think about a cousin who's like a brother to me who's so hard-hearted and far from God. I think about my grandpa who passed away about two years ago and I have no confidence whatsoever that he's with Jesus. So broken about that. I start thinking about close friends of ours that, that, that mean so much to us. But so distant from God. Racing, racing, racing to a Christless eternity. We should be broken for the lost. I love Jesus' response as he came into Jerusalem, as he wept over it. Are we broken for the lost. We should pray for God to move. Here's the fifth response as we begin to pray for God to move. And somewhere between being broken for the lost and praying for God to move is where revival begins to take shape. Okay, that's where revival begins to well up. When, 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 when a group of people begin to be broken about the state of those around them and they get so sick and tired of it that they can't stop pestering God about doing something, that's when revival begins to move. We begin to look at the people around us and recognize you're racing to an eternity apart from Jesus. Jesus. Man, I so hope that in a righteous way you and I are haunted by this. or you and I, we can't go anywhere without beginning to think about this. And whether it's Smith's or Albertsons or Starbucks or Target. Where you start looking around and I don't just see people who are in my way. And some lady who can't get her cart out of my way. But I see someone who is, if she were to die in that very moment, would spend eternity apart from the Savior. And so here, just, just for a moment, if you'll bear with me. I know some of you can't see this. But let me open this window here. That whole valley. That whole valley. Almost a million people in the metro area. And do we even care? or even remotely broken, that as I look out, the vast majority of them are dying apart from Jesus, eternity fixed. God help us that we would be broken for the lost. God help us that we would begin to pray and beg and plead with God for Him to move and work. John Piper says this. He says, Until we know that life is war, we cannot know what prayer is for. Until we know that life is war, we cannot know what prayer is for. God help us that we would just petition and beg and plead with God to see our community transformed by the gospel. Not for some social reason. Not not, not so that life gets better because we recognize that eternity hangs in the balance. Pray for God to move. Here's the final thing. I think this is the most natural one, honestly. We should have a motivation to share the gospel. We should have a motivation to share the gospel. It's what we've just been talking about, but I can't think of a more appropriate response than to simply share the good news. It's to just simply share it. And your job, my job, okay, listen very carefully, you're not responsible to save anyone. You understand that? You're not on the hook to save anyone, but you and I are on the hook as to whether or not we're sharing the message with those around us. We are on the hook for that. We have a great weight and responsibility that we need to respond to that. Motivation to share the gospel. the Cold, hard facts, truths about hell. I mean, they're in red letter, right? Jesus himself said it. It's heavy, it's weighty, difficult. And how are we going to respond? How are we going to respond to this? And in the same way, in the same way that a right view of heaven changes how we live here and now, a right view of hell should change how we live here and now. God help us that we would live with eternity in our minds. Let's pray. Jesus, we we come before you, we recognize the difficulty, the intensity, the severity of this morning. And yet we recognize and realize that your very desires to move us away from that and to uh, you. God, help us that we would see eternity rightly. God, help us that we would see hell rightly. God, help us that we would respond appropriately. Jesus, these teachings are hard. And so I pray that you would give us a humility to embrace them and to respond appropriately to them and to be changed and transformed because of them. We pray this in your name, Lord. Amen.